Hey, good morning, Coastal Church. Pastor Sean here. I want to wish you a happy new year, happy 2024, and uh, so excited you are attending this Sunday morning. I want to introduce our series called Anchors. And, you know, I'm anticipating, and as I'm sure many of you are, uh, 2024 to be a turbulent year, a presidential election. We still have a couple wars going on around the globe, and that can be unsettling. But as a Christian, we have much to be settled on. And so this series, I want to focus on really three things. One, I want to encourage us to be eternally minded, that our anchors rest in the gospel, which rests in eternity. Number two, out of Ezekiel 37, I want us to be anchored in the word of God. God's word will give you life and hope and joy. And then finally, I want us to be anchored in the church. I want us to see the local church as the bride of Christ. I mean, think about the beauty of the bride of Christ. And I really believe in 2024, if we anchor on these three things, God will give us strength, hope, and joy as we journey through this year. Happy New Year, and welcome to the new series, Anchors. Let's grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 14. Good morning again, and welcome to our production of Greece. I'm sure y'all noticed we have a set design behind us. We are really, really grateful for Walsingham, again, being so gracious with their space. Um, and we're looking forward to see how this set develops behind us until Easter. Praise God. Uh, I'm, guys, I'm really, really excited about our time in the Word this morning. John 14, um, and Pastor Sean kind of gave a little bit of an intro to this series. Um, we're going to spend the next three weeks, Lord willing, looking at three different anchors or really three different foundations that God has given us to live the Christian life. Think about the purpose of an anchor for a moment. When a boat or a ship drops an anchor, the boat is moored. It's parked. Lack of a better term, it's not going anywhere. And when the wind and the waves beat against the boat, even ferociously, because the boat is anchored to the ground, it's steadfast, immovable, and secure. Listen, God in his grace has given us as Christians some anchors, anchors that will help us, anchors that will keep us steadfast and secure as we live the Christian life. And I think that first sermon of January 24, I think that these anchors are so needed. I mean, think about where we are in the world right now. Pastor Sean touched on this, but I want to double down just for a second. Think first on the macro level. Right now, globally, Whoa, excuse me, globally, that wasn't me. Globally, there are two wars that I know people in this church are praying for. We've been praying for peace and God's mercy in Ukraine for a couple of years now, praying for local churches and Christ-honoring nonprofits, one of which is represented in the room this morning, people who are working to bring peace to Ukraine, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. We want to see more pastors and church planners. We want to see God's mercy and people getting saved in Ukraine. We want to see Russia retreat. We want peace in that area. We as Christians should be unashamed about praying for peace. And think about the conflict right now in Israel and Gaza. There's uncertainty behind it. We don't know what's going to happen in the war in Ukraine. We don't know what's going to happen in Gaza, but we know that God is a God of peace. And that we're praying again for the name of Christ in that area to be magnified, for God to have mercy. We see these pictures. I see these pictures of abandoned, destroyed buildings and children losing their lives. And it's, it's tempting to think sometimes, how long, oh Lord? 
Like, how long is this going to go on? We don't know. And then closer to home, we have a presidential election this year. The last one was so fun. (laughs) I mean, as Christians, our job is to be a beacon of light, a city on a hill. And again, if 2020 was any indication, we are looking at a year of divisiveness, of unrest, and I would even say uncertainty. And so that's the macro level. Think back now to the micro level where you are this morning. How are you doing? How are you coming into 2024? I know that for some of us, our marriages are struggling and there's uncertainty behind that. And we don't know if we're gonna make it to 2025. I know that for some of us, we have adult children who right now are not in church adult children who we love, deeply love and pray for, and they're wandering from the faith, and there's uncertainty there. We don't know what to say. We want to say the right thing, don't want to say the wrong thing. We don't know if this this backsliding is going to continue. There's uncertainty there. For some of you, you're in that young kid phase. We're in that phase right now where, man, it feels like every day is diapers and snacks, and then more diapers and more snacks. And you feel like every day you're just dying to self, wondering, is it ever going to change? And raise your hand if you're in high school, you're junior or senior. Any junior or seniors in high school? Yeah, has anyone asked you what you're doing after high school yet? If you haven't gotten that question, you're going get to get it about 100 times. Sometimes you just don't know. There's uncertainty about the future. Our college students are still on break. They'll be back in a couple weeks, but they get the same question. What are you doing after graduation? What are you doing? What are you doing? And they don't always have an answer. I mean, I know there are people in this room this morning, church, who profess the name of Jesus, who are legitimate, regenerate followers of Jesus, yet are here this morning and their walk with God is struggling. Like I know for some of you, God feels distant. That intimacy, that fire that you once had when you first came to know Jesus feels like a distant memory. And there's uncertainty about whether or not it'll ever come back. And so listen, in the uncertainty and the chaos in the The change that this year and this world has for us, in comes Malachi 3.6. We'll have it on the screen. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, O Israel, O people of God, are not consumed. Brothers and sisters, when the winds and the waves of anxiety and uncertainty come crashing. And I promise you this year they will. We as a church are going to rest in the immutability of our God. The fact that God does not change, that he is constant, steadfast, and secure, that he's an anchor, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that truth, church, we're not consumed. That's the idea that this series is built on. God has given us anchors to lean on foundations upon which we can build our lives that will not move and will not give way. And we're going to see today that the first of these anchors is Christ himself. 
That's why we're singing songs about Christ this morning, that we are to be anchored first and foremost to the person and work of Jesus, and that the anchor of Christ and what he offers us is enough to weather any uncertainty that you might face in 2024. And we're going to see this in John 14, one of the most powerful and comforting, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. So here's the plan this morning. We're going to read God's Word together. I'm going to read all of John 14 for us. So if you zone out after, totally fine. You're going to get God's word. And I'm going to pray for us and we'll pull out three practical ways that God anchors ourselves to Christ. So let's read John 14. This is the word of God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves." Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. The greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper." The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. 
Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray, church. Father, we thank you for the precious word of God. That's why we're here, because we want to hear from the word of God. It's good for our souls. It's good for my soul as a preacher. And so, Father, I pray for the next few minutes that this would be a supernatural moment and a supernatural gathering. God, your word does not return void. And so, Father, I pray, as always, that you would accomplish your purposes and your people this morning in your church in Williamsburg. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, Coastal, here's what's going on in John 14. At this point in John's gospel, the vast majority of Jesus' earthly ministry has already happened. The conversation that we're seeing here, the one that we just read, was taking place during what's referred to as the upper room discourse. It was the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. And so in John 14, Jesus was only hours away from the cross, and he was using that time, the time that we just read, to prepare his disciples for what was about to take place. It's really important when we read passages like this to remember that the chapter and verse divisions that we see in our Bibles today, they're not the work of the original writers. So John 14, 1 is simply a continuation of the concluding words of John 13. So when Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled in verse 1, he isn't saying that for no reason. It has to be taken in light of his announcement that he was going to die in 13, 31 through 35 and his prediction of Peter's betrayal in John 13, 38. You can look up in your Bibles and see what's going on. So after three and a half years of ministry and life with Jesus, he's basically telling his disciples, I'm leaving you. It's time for me to leave. I'm going to die, and you're not even going to make it through the night without me. I mean, that's the backdrop for John 14, 1. So imagine with me, this moment for the disciples. I mean, if ever they were in need of an anchor, if ever they needed something to hold on to, now was the time. Clearly, their hearts were troubled. It's the same word used for anxious, and we can see why. Their whole world was crumbling, and they were in desperate need of some hope and some assurance. And that's exactly what Jesus offers them in John 14, and in turn, it's what he offers us. Think about it. Christ is preparing his disciples for the next phase in God's redemptive plan. He's about to go to the cross. He's going to rise again and ascend into heaven. Pretty soon, Jesus physically won't be with his disciples anymore. And the disciples then will continue on the ministry of Jesus without Jesus, the physical Jesus walking beside them, which is exactly what we're doing right now, church. So track with me the assurance that Christ offers his disciples in John 14. And the assurance he provides them with, the anchors that he provides them with as they're looking at a future when they can't see or, or touch or talk to Jesus, these anchors directly apply to our lives as well. We are quite literally an extension of his disciples here in the upper room. And so what Christ offers them, Christ offers us. And he offers us three ways that God will anchor our hearts to himself when times of uncertainty and anxiety abound. So let's take these one at a time. Number one, you have these in your notes. 
we're anchored by a heavenly-minded perspective. We're anchored by a heavenly-minded perspective. Look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them in verse 2. Verse 3 says this, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So here's what's happening. Jesus is communicating to his followers, again, which includes everyone in this room, if you're a Christian, that the uncertainty of this world will one day give way to the certainty of heaven, that Jesus, in his mercy, will take us to be with him in the place that he has prepared. Now, how is he preparing it? Jesus has prepared it by going to the cross and dying for our sin. Because of the doctrine of the atonement, Jesus taking the punishment for our sin, we now have access to the place and the person who has prepared it. Look at the emphasis in verse three. If you write in your Bible, go ahead and underline this part in verse three. Where I am, you will be also. This is what I want us to see. When Jesus was offering the hope and the anchor of heaven to his anxious and troubled in heart disciples, he didn't go on and on about the pearly gates. He didn't talk to them about the streets of gold or the river of life. He didn't even mention the fact that in heaven there would be no more crying and no more pain. No, what Jesus offered them, church, was simple, and it was better. He promised to be with them, that They would be where he was. In John 14, the focal point of heaven was not the many rooms. It was the fact that they'd be together. He tells them, verse 3 again, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That's what he wants them to see. Now, here's what I've noticed. There are more books than I can count written about what heaven is going to be like. I think that's natural. We all wonder what heaven is going to be like. Books that address questions like, What jobs are we going to have in heaven? Um, I won't have a job in heaven. Do you ever think about that? Pastors, doctors, lawyers, we won't need any of them in heaven. Books that address questions like, will we eat meat in heaven? I hope so, but I don't know. We play golf in heaven. Who's going to get the apartment? Who's going to get the mansion? I think moms get the mansions. Amen. Yes. Those are all good questions, right? You guys are going to kick out of this. My daughter, Piper, she's five, last week asked me if in heaven, Jesus could make ice cream healthy so she could eat it every day. Like those are things that we think about heaven. And and don't get me wrong, these are fun questions. It can be fun to speculate on this stuff. But I think so often when we think about heaven, we can run the risk of elevating the place over the person who prepared it. And that can be really dangerous. Let me give you an example. I, I ran this exercise when I was preaching at Yorktown a couple years ago. So some of you might remember it, but imagine with me, the perfect place. Everyone, close your eyes. Close your eyes. Imagine with me the perfect place. Okay, you can open them again once you got that place. Maybe you've been to that place before. Maybe it's some tropical island or some ski resort. Um, The perfect place. If you haven't been there, maybe it's the place that's number one on your bucket list. At this perfect place, there's perfect weather. Weather is always perfect in this perfect place. And you get to go there And you get to be there for as long as you want to be there. And the world's best chefs are there at your command to make you whatever you want in this perfect place whenever you want it. So perfect place, perfect food. Now think about perfect leisure activities. You can do whatever you want whenever you want to. Perfect people. You can have all of your best friends there. You can have some of your family there. 
Whoever you want to be in this place is going to be there with you in this perfect place, this paradise. But now imagine with me, in this perfect place, imagine if Christ was not there. Would you want to go to that place? Honestly, I just confess this as your pastor, sometimes that place is tempting for me. Sometimes I'm afraid that I would want to go to that place. And in that confession, it reveals that I missed the point of heaven, that when we are tempted by that place, we miss what heaven is all about. Listen, Christians, we should rather be in the darkest dungeon with Christ than the most perfect paradise without him, because heaven is all about Christ. Heaven is Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said this, there cannot be heaven without Christ. Christ is the sum of total bliss, the fountain from which heaven flows, the element of which heaven is composed. Christ is heaven, and heaven is Christ. Listen, Coastal, heaven is getting to be where he is. He makes this clear in John 14, getting to enjoy him and to know him and to worship him where our worship will be untainted and perfect. There's no sin in that worship anymore. In John 14, Jesus promises his people, he promises us that this will happen, that where he is, we will be with him. And this promise offers us a precious, heavenly-minded perspective that anchors our souls. Because we know, church, that this world is not all there is. That God is using this world, the temporary, to prepare us for the eternal. That your suffering right now will end. That the uncertainty and the anxiety has an end date. That the pain and the heartbreak will be finished because Jesus has promised that we'll get to be with him forever. And so in light of this, if we really have this heavenly-minded perspective, that it changes how we live in this world. Because if we really think about heaven, being with Christ for billions and billions of years, it changes how we live here. It changes how we use our time Our time suddenly becomes something we leverage for the kingdom. Everything is run through that metric. How can I use my time to best glorify God? We leverage our talent. God has gifted us. God has gifted everyone in this room with gifts to build up the church and to advance the kingdom of God. How are you, how am I, how are we together leveraging that talent for the glory of Christ and the advancement of his kingdom? And yes, our heavenly-minded perspective causes us to leverage our treasure, knowing that when we give sacrificially and joyfully, For the advancement of the gospel, we are making an investment that will yield returns billions and billions and billions of years from now. Because we know what concerns us and what worries us and what we're uncertain about today on January 7, 2024, will be a distant memory 10 billion years from now. That's what Jesus offers as an anchor for our soul, heavenly-minded perspective. But here's the thing, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And in John 14, the disciples weren't there yet either. And they now have this hope of heaven, a reunion with Christ, but they are very much still in the midst of the uncertainty and the suffering. And Jesus knows this, and so he offers them, and in turn he offers us another anchor, one that will help us until we get to see him face to face. Number two in your notes, we are anchored by Holy Spirit-inspired power. Holy Spirit-inspired power. So track with me. Heavenly-minded perspective gives us, as Christians, hope for the future. 
And the person of the Holy Spirit will give us help in the present. Look with me at verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The word literally is advocate, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That line, verse 18, is one of my favorite lines in all of scripture. I'm sure that hits different all across this room. Jesus is promising to not leave us as orphans. So we have this promise. He's gonna send the Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of his people. And two chapters later in John 16, he actually says that it's to our advantage that he goes away. It's better for us so that the Holy Spirit might come to live in us. Now, at first, I think this can seem a little bit confusing. I I remember being a new Christian and reading through this upper room discourse for the first time and thinking, man, if I were honest, I think I would rather have the physical Jesus right next to me. Like I could talk to him and look at him, hug him, ask him questions. I could hang out with him all the time. I would have him with me all the time. And I'm guessing the disciples felt the same way. Remember when Jesus told them he was leaving in John 13, they were greatly troubled and anxious at heart. That's what inspired this whole conversation. But here's the thing, church. Having the Holy Spirit inside of us, which is where we are right now in Christ, is better for us than having the incarnate Christ beside us. You want proof of this? Look at Peter. Peter walked with Jesus for three years He heard every sermon Jesus ever preached. He saw every miracle Jesus ever performed. And then three years go by and it hits the fan and Peter abandons Jesus in his darkest hour of need because he's scared. And then 40 something days later, now indwelt by the living spirit of God, Peter stands up in front of all of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and preaches the resurrected and crucified Christ with boldness, not fearing anyone who might throw him in jail. The Spirit of God changed Peter from the inside out, and he does the same thing for us. 2 Timothy 1.7 puts it this way, God has given us the Spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. I want us to see this. God's Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, dwells in believers changes us from the inside out. He empowers us to keep his commands. He magnifies our witness for Christ. He convicts us when we're out of step with God's word. He gives us spiritual gifts for the building up of the church, and he seals us for the day of redemption, offering assurance that we really are in Christ. The Holy Spirit of God, Coastal, is nothing short of a God-ordained miracle. By God's grace, we are God's dwelling place on earth. Literally, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard that. You know we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. You know we're temples of the living God. And sometimes, if you've heard it enough times, it can go in one ear and out the other. And so I want us to see, just for a minute, how incredible of a picture this really is. And so, real quick, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to, but we'll have the words up on the screen. In 2 Chronicles... 
King Solomon had just taken over the throne from his father, David. Solomon now was ruling over the nation of Israel, and Israel was enjoying a time of real peace and prosperity. They had a ton of resources, a ton of power, very few legitimate enemies. Solomon was a wise and wealthy king. He was ruling over Israel. At that point in the Bible, Solomon was seeking after God. The Israelites were seeking after God. Everything was good at the beginning of 2 Chronicles. And God had chosen Solomon, David's son, to be the one to build him a temple to host the Ark of the Covenant, which was where the presence of God resided in the Old Testament. In chapter 3, Solomon builds this temple, and you can read it this week if you want. It's incredible. Solomon's temple was nothing short of stunning. There's giant pillars of stone. Everything's overlaid with gold. He spares no expense. In chapter 5, they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, and the people sacrifice so many oxen and sheep that the Bible says they can't even be numbered. So many of them, and everything was prepared for worship. And then Solomon prays, and he prays arms outstretched, and the people worship God. It's this amazing scene, church, of reverence and awe and rejoicing. And then comes chapter 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshiped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. I want you to actually picture this church. I mean, thousands of people gathered around this incredible ornate building, and then fire comes down from heaven, scorching up the countless offerings and filling up the temple with the indescribable glory of the Lord. The scene was so stunning that everyone just falls on their faces in worship because the Spirit of God has come to dwell. Listen, this is what God has done in you. So what God's done in me, God has sent his spirit to dwell in his people, his glory to dwell in his people, to save us, to redeem us, to rescue us, to give us an anchor for our souls. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire, just like in 2 Chronicles 7, come down and they rest on the apostles. The same Holy Spirit that dwells in the apostles dwells in every follower of Jesus in this room. And so Take heed, Christian, the next time you are tempted to abuse alcohol or any kind of sexual immorality or any kind of sin against your own body, it'd be like taking a sledgehammer to the temple of God, which no one in their right mind would ever do in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. God has given us his spirit as a gift, the gift to be cherished and protected, a gift not to grieve and a gift that will anchor us for the rest of our lives. When Jesus promised us his spirit in John 14, he was promising to empower us, to hold us up until the day when our faith becomes sight and we enjoy that union with Christ. All right, last one. Number three, there are more. I'm just giving us three this morning. We are anchored by God-given peace. God's giving us anchors in this text. We are anchored by heavenly-minded perspective anchored by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the last one, we are anchored by God-given peace. Look at verse 27. 
peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Church, I praise God for this promise. Jesus is promising his peace for his people. Now, this is important. There are two aspects to this peace that I want us to understand. You don't have these in your notes, but I want to encourage you to write them down if you're a note taker. God gives us peace that is first positional, and God gives us peace that is personal. Gives us positional peace and personal peace. First, positional peace. What does that mean? We need to see, I want all of us to see, that our peace with God is a position, a standing, an official standing that we have with God. And it's not our default position either. We don't come into this world with some kind of neutral state. We don't come in with a blank slate. No, we come into this world, everyone in this room, tainted and corrupted by sin. You don't have to teach little kids to sin. I have a two-year-old boy, and I don't have to teach him to hit his sister or to hoard his goldfish. Again, all the young parents can say, amen. We get this. We see this. And sin starts off little when we're little, but we grow, and our sin grows, and our sin is serious. Our sin separates us from God. It actually makes us enemies of God. When we sin, I want us to see this. We're in active rebellion against the God who created us. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to dial in with me just for a second. God has made a way for you to go from being a rebel to an adopted son or daughter, for you to go from being in a state of opposition to a state of peace. Now, this Jesus the one that we've been talking about all morning has prepared that way. And listen, he is the only way for us to have actual positional peace with God. Look at John 14, verse 6. All of us know this one. I am the way, the truth, and the what, church? Life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here's what that means. When we place our faith in the person and work of Jesus, that he's fully God, that he died on the cross for our sin, that he bodily rose from the dead, we obtain positional peace with God. Romans 5.1 puts this very, very clearly. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is positional peace. Since we have been justified by our faith in Jesus, we now have peace with God. Our eternity is secure. Our sin has been forgiven. And so if you're not there yet this morning, let me make your next step very, very clear. The Bible calls you to repent of your sin, which just means to turn back, turn away from your sin, to believe in the message of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's done and receive Christ. And when you do that, and I urge you to do that, if you're not a follower of Jesus in the room this morning, that positional peace happens for you, which then leads to something that every Christian in this room could testify to, personal peace. God gives us positional peace and he gives us personal peace. Verse 27 again, Jesus promises, I almost overlooked this this week, but Jesus promises to give us his peace. I would expect the text to say Jesus gives us peace, which is great, right? We want peace. Everyone wants peace. We don't get this flighty emotion, this feeling that comes and goes. No, we get this supernatural peace of the Son of God. The Son of God wants you to have his peace. 
God wants you to experience his peace. Philippians chapter four expands on this idea. Paul puts it this way. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. Again, think peace of Christ, which surpasses, goes above all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, Christian, the peace of God this year will guard your hearts and minds when it feels like chaos is all around you. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds when you get the diagnosis you've been dreading. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds when you walk through heartbreak or suffering or uncertainty. We don't grieve like the world grieves because we have the peace of God. And this is a peace of God that rises above circumstance and situation. It's an ever-present help for us, a refuge and an anchor in our time in need. And so church, this morning, this year, let us be a people who are anchored to the supernatural peace of God found in the person of Christ. All right, that's the hope this morning, that we would be anchored in Christ. Let me review three things. We are one, anchored by the hope of heaven, heavenly-minded perspective. That's what God expects from his people. Two, we are anchored by the power of the Holy Spirit who continually points us to Jesus. And three, we are anchored by the peace of God provided for us by Christ. I want to invite the band back up. We're going to close in song. I want to invite our prayer team up to, we'll have a couple people on either side of me. Um, we want to minister to you. And so, if something in our time in the Word this morning struck you, if you are wrestling with something we talked about, hear me, church, I want you to feel cared for and ministered to. So come see me, come see our prayer team, come pray with us. And as they get ready to sing, I want to close with this. Um, I had a pastor friend, uh, a mentor of mine for actually a number of years, who before he knew he wanted to go into pastoral ministry, um, just out of curiosity, we have any architects in the room? Any architects in the room? Okay, I don't see any, which is good, because you can fact check my story if I'm wrong. <laughs> so anyway, pastor friend of mine uh, wanted to be an architect before he realized he had a real call to ministry. And so first year undergrad, he walks into his architecture 101 class. Um, really excited him and these future budding architects, really excited to learn how to design these incredible buildings and stadiums and amphitheaters, music halls, all that kind of stuff. And so he walks in day one, sets his binder on the desk. Professor walks in and gives them their day one assignment. The first assignment in day one of architecture class is to design whatever they want. Design whatever they want. The professor comes up and says, okay, we've got some budding architects in here, a lot of creativity, a lot of originality in this room. You guys are smart. I want to see what you can design. And so my mentor, my, my old friend, starts designing this beautiful building. He's looking all around him, and everyone's got these stadiums and these amphitheaters, these incredible designs, skyscrapers, amazing designs. And an hour goes by, everyone's putting the finishing touches on their sketches, and the professor starts walking around the class and looking at everyone's design. He walks past, doesn't make any comment, just walks past, walks past, walks past, just looks at everyone's designs, and gets to the top of the class, there's five minutes till class gets out, and he says, every single one of you failed the assignment, because not one of you started with the foundation for your building. It's real, real easy to build the beautiful things on top. But if we don't have the foundation right, the building's not gonna stand, and you're not going to make it. So 
listen, I think our walk with Christ works the same way. The reason why I wanted this Sunday, and I think every Sunday, to be so Christocentric. By that, I mean Christ-centered. I want to marvel at Christ this morning. I want to look at the anchor that Christ provides us with this morning. Is because in the new year, Christians, if we move past Christ and try to do all the other things in the Christian lives that we're supposed to do without focusing on Christ, we miss it and we fail. I don't want anyone failing in this room. I love you, church. I love you. I love being your pastor. It's been an honor. It is an honor. And I want us to make it. And the way we make it, the way we live the Christian life, is to fix our eyes on Jesus, to make sure that Jesus is our firm foundation, to make sure that anything we build, we build it first on Jesus. And so the next two weeks, we're gonna get to the building. But today, my hope and my prayer for us is that we stay focused on the foundation, that Christ is offering us a promise of eternal life. If you've been a follower of Jesus for 50 years, don't let that get old for you. Eternity in heaven with Jesus. The Christ has sent his spirit to live in our hearts, the temple of the living God. And the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, has been given to us to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your perfect and precious word. God, I thank you for chapters like John 14. They are awesome and honestly fun to preach and I hope fun to listen to. It just, it's bolstering for our souls to hear the words that you spoke to your people when they were anxious. These words are balm for our soul. They're written to us. 2,000 years later, you knew, Jesus, that we would read them. And so you tell us, don't be anxious. Don't be troubled. Take heart for I have overcome the world. Be anxious about nothing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You offer us perfect peace because we trust you, because our minds are stayed on you. And so I pray for this group of people. I pray for this precious little church. You care about this bride, Lord. And I pray for every single person in this room that the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus in the new year. God, I pray for the one who's hurting. Give them peace. Give them peace this morning, Lord. You're so good. And so, Father, we love you, we praise you, and we pray that our lives would go from this place as an offering, as an offering that we would live for you this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.